Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Welcome, everyone. This is Mike Lewis with the Fanalytics podcast. And today I am joined by Sean Steffen, who is a data analyst at the Houston Dynamo. Hey, Sean. Hey, hey guys, how's it going? Hey, so Sean, do do I have your title and everything right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so what I want to do today is to talk about, you know, on the podcast, we usually emphasize issues related to analytics, sports analytics. Mm -hmm. What I want to talk about in terms of Sean is sort of the, I don't know if it's the other side of it, but how do you get into the field of sports analytics? And, And so... Just as a little bit of introduction, so I, I teach a, I teach a class on sports analytics, and every semester I've got five to ten guys that want to get into sports. Usually, they want to get into the front office side of sports. Does that right. sound familiar, Sean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's uh, it's an interesting thing. So throughout the class, I'll bring in a bunch of speakers. Overwhelmingly, the speakers I bring in will be on the business side of the game mm-hmm. with just a few folks, you know, on essentially the track, and, and I'll use this specifically, on the track to become a general manager, which is, I, I think, a dream job for a big chunk of folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so, absolutely. Although, you know, I I, uh, I see how busy our general manager is sometimes, and I don't envy him sometimes, so... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, technical director, right? Is that what sure. you, you guys call it? Well, uh, we, I, I believe uh, it's different for different clubs. We have a we have a general manager. Okay. So, Sean, the, the other reason I wanted to have Sean on is that Sean is an Emory grad. So, I, I teach in the the Goisweta School of Business, and and Sean, you were a uh, Emory grad in terms of which of the colleges down here? So, yeah. So uh, uh, it's Oxford, twenty ten. Uh, shout out to all the Oxford people. I know it's a tight knit group, and then uh, Emory, twenty twelve. So, so. Th- so this is a little bit, little bit inside. So Emory is unique in terms of major research universities in that they also have a campus. There's two campuses. I don't know why I'm doing a commercial for Emory, but <laughs> why, why not? So there's two campuses. So you can apply to go to Emory, or you can apply to go to. Oxford, Oxford College, and then mm-hmm. automatically transfer over to, to Emory after a couple of years. Yeah, after two years, yeah. And it's a great uh, just continue if I, <laughs> the advertisement. Um, it's a great path just because um, for the first two years, you get like that small classroom mm-hmm. environment. And then by the time you're really starting specializing in what you're studying, you go to the main campus and get those, um, you know, the bigger classes, but you get those more higher, highly regarded professors. I don't want to put the Oxford professor down there incredible. But um, you get like the Emory experience. As it well, is. So. It is a split. It is a split system. Like I've never actually met any of the faculty out at Oxford. Um, sure. Yeah. So, what was your major? Your declared major at at Oxford? The, my major at Emory. Um, I think there oh. are majors at Oxford. Is uh, uh, <laughs> funny enough, creative writing. Okay. <laughs> so, not your typical path into sports analytics. Okay, but, but you were a you were a big sports fan even before you went. You you joined Emory. Yeah, no, I was a huge soccer fan. I mean, I have vivid memories of sitting um, at Oxford, sitting, uh, taking over the Hey Good, uh, which is one of the dorms there, uh, TV, uh, to watch, you know, uh, to watch MLS. And then I sitting in, I had this tiny TV when I lived um, at Emory. I was in uh, the Claremont Towers. 
And I remember watching vividly one of my favorite soccer games ever, which was RSL versus Cruz Azul in the CONCACAF Champions League. I believe it must have been 2011, I want to okay. guess. And, you know, that. so I, I have very vivid memories involving MLS and, and Emory because at the time, you know, MLS has grown a lot. I'm sure especially with Atlanta United, they see a lot more MLS fans there. But at the time, it was very, very rare um, to see MLS people there. So I felt like, you know, like I was the only one. So, so at that point, and, and like like you said, this is 2011, 2012. So this is a different world in a lot of mm-hmm. ways, in terms of well, in terms of just about everything, in terms of the media environment, or in terms of the state of analytics. And you were mm-hmm. a creative writing major. So was um was a was a career in a sports front office even on the radar at that point? You know, it wasn't. And it, this is why I did creative writing. Um, I grew up loving math until I got to a point where I wasn't really, I felt like I wasn't good at it anymore. And that was um, mainly because I, so uh, I've got ADD. So I I had a problem growing up doing like multi-step equations and keeping things straight and doing things within a time limit. So I kind of started to hate math for the wrong reasons. And that's something, you know, I got over fortunately after college, but because of that, my fear of taking math classes in college, I was kind of blocked off from other interests I had. I had interests in sciences um, because, and I had interests in, um, I was also looking into political science at the time, but I landed on creative writing because it's something that I, I enjoyed. And, you know, cause I've always seen myself as sort of like a balance between creative and, you know, analytical. And I think that we can get into this, but I think that balance helps me a lot in what I do. Well, and, and just to set set the reference, and I'll I'll make some observ- observations as we go through this. 2011, 2012. So the Moneyball book was already well known. It was already. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't remember when the movie came out. I, I suspect the movie was out by then. So this was already part of popular culture, and and I think Moneyball was a transcendent event in terms of creating a path or opportunities to go into the front offices because look this can be done you don't have to have been a mm-hmm. you know a, a major league player or an NFL player there's another path you know so i am interested in sort of how much of that had affected you how much of that you are aware of the the other observation is that the creative writing i think of that as storytelling mm-hmm. and i think storytelling is an enormous part of this industry. I mean, it's an enormous part of just about any profession at this point where, you know, you've got to, and so you're doing any analysis, but then you've got to communicate the analysis. You've got to tell the story of the analysis. Absolutely. So so I think you're probably right that in some ways that was probably a very unintentional sort of accidental step on the path that may well have helped you quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, it, it absolutely was in, in more ways than one. And, and you know, that was uh, one of the talking points I wanted to get to was, uh, yeah, so much of my job is about communication. And uh, I think creative uh, creative thinking, which helped me, which, you know, the creative writing degree. Also, when you get the creative writing degree, you do a lot of English classes, you're doing essays about stuff. And a lot of that is being able to uh, read a book, make connections between points to, to think about, and then convey those connections in, into a hypothesis into a not hypothesis into a thesis and and communication is key right so you know in all those classes learning to deliver a point to an audience you know later on i sort of honed this we'll get into this a bit where i was doing some soccer journalism and it was i sort of took those same skills and then evolved them a bit more and then i use those skills on a daily basis now because so much of the job is not only just seeing the data but you know data is pretty worthless if you can't communicate its value and so so much my job is saying how can I make this, you know, something that the coaches can look at, get instantly, and apply it, you know? Well, further background. So Sean contacted me following the the podcast we did with Lucy Rushton at the Atlanta United. And so, I, you know, I thought that was great. Was, um, you know, like I said, we're, we're, at Emory, we're sitting here in Atlanta. And, you know, I've done a lot of work with Lucy over the last couple of years. And this issue of communication is absolutely enormous right and so so sean is you know we can go more into what you do on a daily basis but sean is i'm going to guess fundamentally an analyst someone that works with data that is then asked to communicate that data to a variety of folks maybe coaches maybe general managers they may not have a high comfort level with data and again, I think this varies by organizations, but I mean, do you find yourself talking to folks that where they don't want to know about the numbers? They just want the insights. 
Well, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I've only worked at one club. Okay. So I can't speak about, I've heard, you know, about other clubs, but I, I feel fortunate because, you know, obviously not everyone is going to be as, um, you know, with the coaching staff, general manager, aren't going to be as um, read up on specifically data analytics at, in soccer as I am, because, you know, it, that's a pretty hard ask <laughs> of them, but they're always extremely receptive. You know, if I send something, the general manager, the coaching staff, they're um, extremely receptive of it. And I think a lot of that, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to speak for them, but they, I was not the first person to sort of bring data into this club. Uh, there was a guy named Oliver Gage. who uh, was a performance analyst before me. And uh, from my understanding, he did a great uh, job. So by the time that I got there, they were sort of familiar, you know, familiar with it, trusting of it. And I feel very fortunate for that because it makes my job a ton easier because I know that uh, what I'm seeing is going to, I don't have to do any fighting over, you know, this, this is valuable. This, you know, I don't have to do any of that. It's so the, the, the coaching staff, the general manager, I can't speak highly enough of how receptive they are to uh, sports analytics in general. You know, it, it's an interesting little aside, but, you know, strangely, I, I kind of get the sense that the city, you know, cult, culture matters on this stuff. And the city of Houston is actually kind of a hotbed for sports analytics, isn't it? With the the Astros and uh, you know the Houston Rockets, you know Daryl Morey being an <laughs> NBA kind of advocate or evangelist for for analytics, sprawl ball, right? Yeah, Isn't that it, what they call it. Yeah, and, and so part of me wonders is like, is it you know how much of that culture in terms of you know because you know in a local environment probably a lot of these folks know each other. That's got to be a really kind of beneficial part of you know working at the Dynamo, Dynamo if the the culture is very kind of pro analytics and people are interested in it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I'm actually, um, I know that at one point the, I've heard that the Astros and the Rockets uh, had like a little meetup, like a little monthly like meetup. That doesn't surprise me at all. And it makes, it makes a lot of sense. You know, one of the, I tend to, you know, when I work in this domain and I've worked with, you know, basketball and I've worked with um, soccer and a little bit with football as in, on an amateur level, let's say in the case of football, you know, the, the sports are always very different, right? There's always going to be these idiosyncratic elements, but some of the fundamentals end up being fairly similar, I, I think. Let's, um, and I want to get to one of those, so make sure that it, we, we get back to this and sort of the issue or the case of bunting and how you might draw <laughs> some parallels to issues in soccer. But going back to something you mentioned, I, I think you, you mentioned that you worked in, um, in journalism or, mm-hmm. you know, sort of the, let's say, call it the blogosphere at some point. Sure. So, yeah, absolutely. So, so post-Emory, how did you start to, you know, wh- what did you do and how did you get the attention of, because um, I think one of the big questions in this world is always, how do you break in? Sure. And so what did you do to sort of make a name for yourself? So when, when I got out there, um, you know, I was sort of bouncing between jobs and uh, the entertainment industry. <laughs> uh, and I was, but, you know, I was following MLS up there, I was following the Galaxy. And, you know, sort of as a side business, I was, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm a writer. I'm going to I'm going to start writing about this team in doing that. You know, that was a great way of making connections. I kind of used the skills I had um, for my English degree, which is whenever I wanted to say something, a lot of the times I see in sports journalism, people will say something and they don't really try to back it up because it's all like it's opinion based. So I had this urge as an English major. I'm going to go. I'm going to back it up. Right. And then that brought me into you know look starting to look at analytics right so if i wanted to see something uh, if i wanted to like oh i feel like this guy's not getting enough passes or whatever i would then go look at the numbers and that eventually led me to the site american soccer analysis american soccer analysis is a the it's a blog in the u.s uh that focuses on mls and american soccer and they do advanced analytics on it and they have an open data set it's an absolutely incredible site and i got in contact with these guys and then from there, that's when I started writing for them. And that's really where, from, from an analytics standpoint, that's where my work got out there. So they have a, so what, what kind of data do they have available? Um, it, it's it's all, so openly, like on the site, you can get uh, expected goals, expected assists, expected goal chains. They have a expected passing model. So they, they have, have player level data? At, yes. At, yeah. the, at the level of sort of game by game results or season by season results? Everything. And then if you want to write for them, all you have to do is contact them. They have so much more data behind the scenes, and, you know, and, and they can give you all the data you need. And this is hugely helpful if you're if you want to 
you know, because from what I do, one of the hardest things to break into this industry is getting your hands on data, right? ASA will give you that data. So that was nurture my skills and then give me the data I needed to to grow. And that's so key in this in this breaking into the sports world because, yeah. you know, that is, that is hugely valuable. Data costs thousands of dollars. And, you know, ASA will give it to you. All you have to do is write for them. And right? this, is, this is something that I think is an interesting thing about all of this world of sports going beyond soccer is this idea. And so a, a couple of things, you know, as, as Sean's talking, a couple of light bulbs went off for me. So, so number one, this idea of kind of proving yourself in the public sphere. Mm-hmm. Right. So sort of starting in, the, you know, the, I guess the stereotype would always be you're doing analytics in, in mom's basement or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. And putting it out there on the on the blogs and, and seeing who reads it. I think that was actually, especially in the area you're talking about, Sean, was incredibly common in terms of, you know, how some folks got noticed. I remember one of them, um, sort of the, one of the guys we've had in class a few years ago was a guy named Neil Greenberg. And his story is actually very similar to yours in that I think he was doing hockey analytics and then was noticed and then went on to become a, uh, you know, a columnist for a major newspaper talking about the analytics side of hockey. So I, I think this is, um, this, is, this is kind of par for the course. And I think it's surprising to a lot of folks in that, you know, one of this kind of non-traditional path in terms of business is to essentially just start, just start doing it on your own and putting it out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it kind of makes sense because when you think about it, if they're developing at clubs, they're not being talked about, right? Right. Because, you know, it's all proprietary. So the only public stuff you're getting are these blogs. So, you know, so much of my job, what helped me in my job was voraciously consuming everything I could about expected goals, about basically anything in soccer analytics, and then being able to then use that knowledge, apply that knowledge to a data set, and then get that out there on a platform that people read. I mean, that was huge. That was everything. You know, I've, I've talked to people at other, when I was looking for jobs, you know, talked to a, um, someone at a club and they said, you know, I, and when I was envying, they said, you know, I actually read this article of yours in from 2015 or whatever. And that it, it made me stop and go, wow, because in 2015, I, I didn't think people from clubs are reading. I just thought it was fellow nerds like me, you know, <laughs> well, you but know- no, like this stuff gets, but the thing is like this stuff gets read and that's how people get found and you know it's it's pretty incredible i know asa has launched the careers of not only me they have um two of the analysts for the u.s uh national team have um written for there in the past and i know there's someone who works at opta who has written there well, in the past so so it, it is a huge launching point and it's kind of great right and in, in a way it's almost like an open source version of analytics because right, you're right exactly. that that for most organizations or companies you know they've got their own proprietary data they're building their own internal models, and no one gets to see that stuff, right? And mm-hmm. so this is something where it's almost like more of a pure free market where, you know, guys like you and tens or 20 or 100 other guys are out there. And in a way, you're kind of sort of simultaneously competing and cooperating, right? You're learning from each other, and you're sort of proving who's who's kind of the most insightful or the best at this stuff. Yeah, and the, what I've noticed about the data and its communities in soccer, at least— can't speak for everything else, how supportive everyone is. Mm-hmm. When I wrote my my first um, piece for ASA, I there was all these other guys at ASA um, who I looked up to. They they read through my piece. They they gave me suggestions. They gave me advice. And, you know, I, I felt like, is this, at the time, you know, I was like, is this good enough for ASA, right? And they were like, this is absolutely good enough for ASA. It's like, they, they boosted my confidence. And then, you know, when it was out there, seeing people in the industry outside of ASA uh, comment on the article, but, you know, that was and being supportive, that was that was huge for me. It's kind of interesting. It's like a, a supportive version of peer review like we have in academia. <laughs> yeah. Now, Sean, let me ask you this. So, you know, you were you, you mentioned you were a creative writing person. So when you started to dig into the data, what kind of tools did you use, um, both in terms of software potentially and in terms of statistics? How did you get how did you, you know, since you're and I don't. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but almost if you're sort of self-taught or self-trained in this, how did you go about coming up with the right rigorous toolkit? Right. Yeah. I mean, it was it was very basic at, uh, to start. It was just you know Excel. Okay. And then um, Excel tutorials, and then um, you know I had taken stat classes before, and then I'd read up you know on things I was uh, unfamiliar with, and you know how to do it in Excel. 
And, you know, honestly, a lot of the early stuff I did wasn't a lot of complex things. It was like, let's look at the regression on this. You know, it's a couple of clicks okay. in Excel, right? But, but, but so linear regression helped, was yeah. linear regression was the starting point? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. And then, you know, it was just, I, honestly, it was just Excel. You know, it was, sometimes it was basic addition, division. Like, the math wasn't complicated to start, but there's still so much to find just mm-hmm. doing, you know, the most basic, basic stuff. And I think that's a that's a great point and a great uh, sort of a great foundational point, right? That you can accomplish a lot just by looking at the data and manipulating the data in terms of Excel. And if you've got to quantify relationships, then linear regression is a you know I, I almost go back and forth when I'm teaching when I'm teaching classes. How much farther do I want to go than linear regression? <laughs> I mean, does linear regression solve? Is linear regression as you know, basically as a good or as effective as more complicated models, right? So it's, it's, it's a, your starting point is interesting to me. How much have you felt the need to go beyond those initial tools as your career has progressed? Uh, it, it depends on the problem, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of my job is seeing a problem, figuring out how can I, like what tools can I use? So obviously the first tools I always attempt to address the problem are the simplest ones. And a lot of the times, a regression is exactly what you need. Occasionally, you get you get things where it's like, okay, I need to, I need to go beyond Excel. Like I need to start. I'm just, you know, I have to start learning, uh, you know, uh, R. Okay. And you know, you know, stuff like that. And just trying to, because I need to manipulate the data further because I need to link events and stuff, and you know, or I need to read up on other models and other ways of seeing. Uh, correlations and stuff. But honestly, a lot of the times the regression works just fine. So so what Sean's mentioning, and, uh, and I think this is, you know, for folks in the industry for and for folks in data analytics, you know, he, he casually dropped the term, I might have to learn R. So one of the things that's happened, and like I said, this is this is true well beyond sports, is there there's been a shift towards programming languages called R and Python. Mm-hmm. What that's these, the big debate, right? I'm sorry, yeah. I jump in, but that's a big debate. I mean, people contact me on LinkedIn all the time, students, mm-hmm. and then that's a big debate. They're like, you know, should I learn Python or R? And, and you know, what I've you, heard so many. What do you tell them? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard so many conflicting things. You know, um, personally, I'm I'm jumping in in R first. Okay. But you know, I've heard that R is Python is better for big data manipulation. R is is obviously better for like visualization and stuff. And if you can learn both, great. But from my understanding, if you know if you know one well, you'll be fine. Well, and and sort of to I mean, if we're going to be in the business of giving students uh, advice here, and we we probably should today. Learning R, so there is a bit of a debate, and you know, I'm I'm old enough that you know, sort of I grew up in the language you needed to know was SAS. Everything was SAS, 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 <laughs> and I think there's still some room for SAS. But the problem is that a, a SAS license tends to be expensive. So if you're Again, to the stereotype, if you're doing these analyses in mom's basement and you're pulling data for free from the web, if you want a, an analytics tool that's going to allow you to get beyond Excel, and I, I think Sean said something really important there, this ability to manipulate data. And, you know, I'll even say, you know, and not to get too far into the weeds, but if you're going to learn, if you're going to learn a couple of things, if you're going to learn three things, I'll give you my three things, Sean, and then you can react to it. SQL, R, and linear regression might be the starting <laughs> point. Yeah, you know, SQL is another one I'm trying to to jump in on. You know, there's there's so much that you know can help you in this industry, and you know, I, a lot I wish I learned in college. You know, because yeah. uh, right now I'm learning on the fly, and uh, it, it's a lot more pressure packed when you when you know I have to, I would like to learn this by you know next month. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and this is a good point. I mean, the, these tools are actually something that. And again, not to, you know, if we're going to advocate or, you know, give advice on, you know, how to become the next generation data analyst for anything in sports, you know, there's almost, you know, sometimes you almost get resistance from students like, oh, I don't want to be a programmer. I just want to sort of talk about who to trade for. Mm -hmm. But if you want to lay a foundation in this stuff, in some ways you do kind of got to geek out and you got to learn how to code. And, you know, once you learn how to code... The next, you know, once you learn something like R, and I, I do think you're right that there's a debate right now of R versus Python. You know, once you learn R, learning Python's pretty easy. 
Um, you know, once you, so. <laughs> it, it will be for you. <laughs> once you and once you're familiar with you know writing your own code, then learning SQL actually also ends up being relatively straightforward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, and again, while all of this is important, you know, I, I think I've, I see a lot of people on the analytics world they get so caught up in learning that that they when when they put out these incredible things in R or you know or I see people who are just masters of Tableau right and then I see this incredible viz or this incredible methodology and then I, I look at it and I go this is this is great work but I don't see a clear like thesis I don't or I don't see a clear it's it's not clear enough what what this model is doing or what you're trying to tell me with it so you know at the end of the day still communication is king okay so I don't want to say I like I I would caution while these things are important you don't want to get too caught up in it that you kind of lose the main point, which is it still has to be something that everyone can look at and get. Okay. So can I, um, can I say, so in, in terms of if we're sort of building a framework for how a future Emory student can become mm-hmm. a, a general manager or, you know, sort of go on this track, communications and ability to talk and explain a problem and present results absolutely critical having an analytical foundation that is and let's say as deep as the problem requires so maybe sometimes it's excel and working with you know basically flat data files sometimes it's you know more complicated and some tasks might require r or python and an ability to you know really make the data jump through hoops and some advanced mm-hmm. statistical methodologies right and so it's in mm-hmm. some ways look the the ideal candidate might be the the novelist who also has a phd in stats right <laughs> but, but given that we're not going to get that at least we can agree on the the broad foundational skills Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's, those are really the two, the two biggest ones. And, you know, creative thinking, you know, being able to think about the sport in creative ways and ask questions and knowing that thinking about creative ways, you can go about trying to answer that question. Okay. So creative ways to answer and, and creative ways to think about sports. So let's, let's talk for a second about that. So I think the the right mindset on a lot of this stuff is, and, you know, feel free to, you know, push back on me, Sean is that this is really kind of decision support, okay? So mm-hmm. there, there's, a, there's, someone that's making, that's, there's someone that's writing checks or deciding who gets to, you know, enter into, in, to be in the starting lineup. You're giving them insights to help them do their job. That, that's my point of view on this. And so how much of, and, and sort of go along the lines of what you're saying, and sort of create, being able to think creatively about the sport – how much of what you do is almost Sean being the mad soccer scientist and how much of it is your general manager or your coach saying, I'd like to know X or I'd like to know sure. Y? Uh, you know, it, it depends on the, on the, the week, you know, okay. there's some <laughs> weeks where, you know, uh, I'm doing, um, I'm working on something that I want to look into that I see that I want to, and if I can back it up, maybe send over. Yeah, so some weeks, you know, I'm looking at something for myself and then seeing if I can get that, um, if I can back it up. And sometimes sometimes I'll have a theory and then I'll look at the data and go, well, that blows my theory of the water, right? And then uh, sometimes uh, it'll ba- I'll back it up. And then, you know, if, in that case, if it's helpful, I'll send it through. And maybe they can make adjustments on it. Maybe they don't. You know, that's, that's up to them. They have a much, you know, uh, they've got a tactical understanding of the sport that I obviously don't, you know, as coaches. And, you know, some weeks they're they're coming to me and saying, can you look at this? Can you look at that? And I think both are equally valid because, you know, I think when it comes to the coaches and me, we, we see the sport in different ways. And I think both are valid and important. And I think melding those two ways together to see the sport in a in a more broad way is really like the key to success. OK, so let, let's change direction a little bit here. So in terms of soccer analytics. Mm-hmm. And, and again, you know, it's a, like I, I've I've worked with folks here in Atlanta. the The problems that I've worked with them on are more related to, let's say, player performance forecasting. So, what's a player gonna do next? Mm-hmm. And so that that that's one aspect of soccer analytics. In terms of some of our background communication, 
Where would you start to think about soccer analytics um, as someone trying to get into this field? What are some of the key, you know, and sort of, again, further background? And I think most people listening have some depth of knowledge here. You know, I, I think very often the, the classic story here is, you know, the Oakland A's figuring out that on-base percentage was, mm-hmm. yeah. was the, the, you know, sort of the path to success. And so is there something, you know, so what, what's foundational in terms of soccer analytics? The big thing, and it's still the bedrock, it's been the bedrock for years, and I think soon we're going to be advancing past it. But, like, the big metric right now is expected goals. And I think first and foremost – you have to learn that metric. You have to learn what it does, what it's good at, what it's not good at. You have to um, be able to understand the model. When you watch a game, think about the model. And, you know, look when you see a shot and you see its value, understand, okay, maybe the model takes this into account, but not this into account. Okay, Sean, let me, let me just slow you down here. So when you say the model, is there one generally accepted model or are there competing models? So there are a lot of expected goals. Models. And, and actually, let me let me take you back even one step farther. So expected goals. What it, sure. could you define that? Even? Yeah, sure. I can. Uh, I've actually gotten really good at explaining this uh, <laughs> this data over the years. So um, expected goals puts basically a conversion percentage on a shot. It's the reason why it's useful. Before I go into how it works, is it is shown to be more predictive of future goals than past goals. Right. So if a player has 14 goals in a season, seven expected goals that season, they're much more likely to get closer to seven goals the next season than they are to 14. Okay. So that so, so that's the uh, the gist of it. So just to be clear, it's um, you know you're you're looking at the shots a player take, and then you're adjusting for uh, how high quality the shots were, how high quality the opportunities were. To essentially do what? Cancel out the noisiness of the process? Yes, absolutely. Goal scoring. Um, it's one of the cool things you, you learn when you get into soccer is that you know a lot of people talk about finishing, you know, the skill of being able to finish your chances. One of the cool things you learn when you look at the data is uh, while finishing exists, it's not nearly as important as noise, mm-hmm. right? It's not nearly as important as just random chance. And what an expected goal shows is that. Expected goals works by um, the biggest factor in it is shot location. But then it also takes into account the, the type of pass that is uh, that leads to the chance, uh, how the shot is taken. Um, you know, is it taken with the foot, with the foot or the head? So expectacles looks at, you know, uh, so if it's a cross, uh, a shot from, from the six, um, from uh, in the six-yard box, will have a different value depending on whether it's, if you take it with your foot on a fast break versus if it's off of a cross okay. and it's on with the head. The cross and with the head will have a much lower conversion percentage than if it were with the foot. So, so all of these things are taken into account. Okay, and so this is where you know I start to get interested, and I've never I'm I'm aware of the the concept of expected goals. I've never looked it with any depth into actually how any of these models work in terms of the statistical side or even the um, the way the data is formatted. So you know, for example, you start out talking about the location of the shot what goes into the location even so i mean what do you mean by what goes into the like what is it, it, it is a distance is it the angle to the center of the goal oh, sure, i'm just yeah. trying to think through yeah. how i might look at the problem it, it's both okay. um so you know uh, the way that these are tracked is there are watchers that um usually uh, opta is the company uh usually and they're they you know they're watching a the game when the shot happens they click somewhere on their computer and, and then you know uh, that's where the shot happened. Um, and then it looks at the angle to goal. Okay. And then it looks at um, distance from goal. And then, you know, as we talked about, the factors that led to the shot. And, and I'm also assu- hugely important. I'm assuming there's been an evolution over time that, you know, maybe the very first models just looked at, you can imagine, and, and given when this work started, I'm sure they were more sophisticated at the outset, but you can imagine you might initially start with something simple of like, well, what was the distance to the goal? Mm-hmm. And yeah, then absolutely. over time, you add, you know, the angle uh, towards the goal, and then information on, like you were saying, the the pass, the, how that, you know, how the velocity of the ball coming to the player, where it came from, um, whether it's off the foot or whether it's off the head. And I think of this as continually adding more covariates. Has that been the process? Yes, absolutely. And honestly, I think we're starting to get to the upper limits of what we can actually do with um, in terms of improving expected goals. 
because and how are uh, one more quick question and so how are the models then what is the statistical model is it and so i i just make this point because this might be one of these examples where you do want to go beyond linear regression in terms of how it's tested well in in terms terms of how the model is estimated and again maybe we're getting too far into the weeds here yeah i i think it depends on the model i'm trying to trying to think of the name of the um, I've had to do it by hand one time, so I'm not going to be the I'm not going to be the best um, assessor. But uh, one cool thing, if you go to AmericanSoccerAnalysis.com, plug that site again, uh, their model is open, so okay. you can see exactly how they're calculating it. So um, instead of me stumbling my way through uh, from memory, I would I would recommend um, if you're interested, go to that site and you can look it up and you can. You can do it by hand if you want. <laughs> okay, and, and I'll just I'll just add something here as the professor that I, and, and the reason why I reference why you might want to go be this might be an example where you might want to go beyond linear regression, is when you're talking about events that are zeros or ones, either you score a goal or you miss a goal. Very often, folks will want to use something called logistic regression, um, and logistic regression is, in some ways, it, it can look similar to a linear regression model, but it's more built, it's designed for when you've got zeros and ones instead of continuous values. And and again, like I don't want to get too far into the, the weeds. I'll keep using that phrase today. When, and I that that's the phrase that always pops into my head when we're talking about analytics. This is one of these examples or one of these reasons why potentially you need to get beyond Excel. So when you get into some statistical models that are a little bit more advanced, then you might need to use something like R or Python. Okay, so off the soapbox, back to you, Sean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's absolutely. And, you know, if you really want to get into the weeds, again, um, I'm looking at it right now, just skimming through on my phone, the American Soccer Analysis explanation of it. And, you know, there's there's a lot there to uh, to go into. So, yeah, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll leave that for someone uh, exploring <laughs> on their own. Okay, and so th- this issue of expected goals. So that's that's an interesting thing. So you so basically, when you look at um, future success, future goal scoring, that the expected goals are a better predictor than actual goals. Mm-hmm. And let me let me ask you a question because we were actually in class last semester. We were playing around with um, with a data set for for a class project that where some of the folks at the United were actually helping us out with and. We had goals and we had expected goals there. And, and again, this, this is one of these questions where you can sort of, sort of shake your head. One of the things that I found some of the students playing around with was the difference between actual goals and expected goals and labeling that as a player's skill level or mm-hmm. ability to finish. What do you think of that idea? Oh, that's a big debate. That's a big debate. Um, so there are a couple... You're actually talking to the right person on this. There are a couple papers written on this. There are quite a few. There's one that I opt. I can't think of who wrote it. I wish I could. Michael Cayley did a really good article about finishing in EPL. And then I wrote one about MLS. Okay. <laughs> uh, just to plug my own work. And well, where, and my, where, where would they, if folks wanted to read that, where would they find that? On the uh, American Soccer Analysis website still? or? Yes, I believe it's a three part article about uh, if you look up finishing MLS and then my name on Google, you'll, you'll, you'll find it. But what I have found is that MLS data differs from EPL or Spain or like these other big leagues in that it is much more noise-based than finishing-based. And what I, from my understanding of from what I've seen on the work from the EPL, it's a very small handful of people who continually outperform their expected goals. There are different theories about why. Maybe it could just be, you know, EPL's got incredible players. Could just be a skill thing, MLS player versus EPL. But I think it also has to do with salary caps, right? That a player for Barcelona is going to have better chances because they spend so much money on that team versus, you know, the smaller teams in that league. MLS, the salary cap, you know, makes more for more parity. So you don't get these huge lopsided games. Um, you know, you see a lot of the times when you look at mega teams in other countries, their stats for all these players are you know, very ballooned. And I think that may be a huge part of it. Yeah, it's not like we haven't had players in the world that came to MLS that people wouldn't, that you know, people consider certain players as great finishers. And it's not like we haven't had those in MLS, right? You know, I ask people when they bring up this point about skill, I say, do you think Thierry Henry is a good finisher? Do you think Robbie Keane is a good finisher? You know, I bring up these guys and then they'll go, well, yeah, of course. And then I go, okay, 
Well, even they aren't in MLS data, aren't consistently outperforming their spectacles year over year. So I think a lot of what people think of as finishing isn't actually finishing um, in terms of, uh, I think it's random noise. And that's a really hard thing to, to wrap your mind around because it seems crazy. But sorry, when you come back to the data, time and again, you're going to see that finishing isn't as big a deal. So, so Sean, so when we talk about um, this issue of finishing, it actually, and, and I, I, you know, I don't know if this is fair. It's, um, like I said, I see some, you know, differences, but I also see similarities across sports. And when you, so when you're talking about like this thing, do, do people persistently outperform expectations, right? So is there something about a given player that means they're going to do better than their expected value, essentially? It starts to remind me of um, things like the hot hand in basketball. Are you familiar mm-hmm. with that? A, a little bit, but if you could fill me in more. Well, well. so basically the idea is, you know, if, if you have the hot hand, a hot hand, then are you more likely to make the next shot? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so it, it ends up being this this kind of question of, uh, you know, and, and I will, all, as a professor, I'll, you know, I think the simplest example is almost always like going back to the coin flip. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if I flip a coin and I've got 100 people in the room, you know, we might see some folks that are pretty good coin flippers. Right. <laughs> if we, yeah. We might see folks that flip, you know, five heads in a row. OK. And so, the, you know, the expected value of their heads is going to be what is going to be two and a half. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we always got to be careful in terms of identifying, you know, labeling that as like a great coin flipper versus a great three someone that's on a three-point shooting streak in the NBA or someone that is a great goal finisher, right? Absolutely. And, you know, the thing with expected with, with shot models is you need a lot of shots, right? So right. You, you, it's very easy to read into trends over 25 shots. You know, you, you need like a 1,000 at least, you know? And so, you know, you see guys maybe two years in a row, they're like five or six goals over their expected goals, but in their career, they're like one under. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you know, like, was that a hot hand thing or was that just natural noise, you know, like a coin flip? Yeah, that's always a, that's a big thing, um, trying to trying to think about those philosophical questions and when it comes to expected goals. There are a lot of philosophical implications of expected goals that are just fun to sit down and think about. No, look, I, I like this conversation a lot. And, and you think about how how important this kind of question really is in terms of, let's say, identifying, you know, does one guy who sort of got the noise went in his direction. He gets labeled a superstar, and maybe he gets paid, right? Mm-hmm. So this stuff ends up being really, really important to be able to think through and think about what it means for the future, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so Sean, what do, you think, um, what do you think is next? What do you think the trends are going to be in terms of soccer analytics? So right now, there hasn't been a lot of public work on tracking because – Tracking data is sort of just now coming to soccer, like fairly recently, and it's not public right now. So I think a lot of the, for me, uh, what's crazy about tracking is, you know, when you look at tracking data, whatever, it's like, um, you know, think of, you're going to have a data point for 11 players on the field for every frame of video, 24 24 frames per second, now, you know, over an entire over an entire game. That's a lot of data. Right? And I do, uh, you know, I do want to thank you for saying that that's a lot of data. So let's pause there for a second and just visualize what that data is going to look like. Mm-hmm. And pretend, you know, and I'm, I'm saying this for the listeners out there. Imagine you have a spreadsheet on this. For every player, second by second data potentially in terms Not of even where second by like, second, it's frame by frame. Frame so by frame. 24, for, 24 frames per second. So... so to do yes. so, and th- this is a tough thing for folks, right? So the first thing you got to do in terms of working with this data is you got to figure out a way to throw away most of it, right? <laughs> yes, right? absolutely. It's it's so cumbersome, and it's and when I first you know got my hands on it, it was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. It kept me up at night. Like, what am I going to do with this? Because there's so much value in it, but it's so like it's so daunting. It's so it was like a monster I had to overcome. Completely overwhelming, right? I mean, just. It, yeah, I mean, it's hard to wrap your head around it. And 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 look, soccer's worse. Soccer's terrible for this, right? 11 players moving. I mean, that's just um 
uh, you know, mm-hmm. it gives me a headache thinking about it too. Yeah, it's it's crazy, but there's so much there, you know, because a, a lot of what we do now is called event data. That is, companies like Opta log events. So, like, if a pass happens, we know about it. If a tackle happens, we know about it. We don't really know what happens in between, right? So right. if a player passes to another player and then receives a play a pass at another point, you can do um, you can start chaining events and assume okay he moved from here to here. You don't actually know how he moved, right? So moving from event data to tracking data offers so much more information along the way, and I think that's going to be the huge breakthrough in terms of what we're going to find in the field. But right now we're we're thinking about ways to actually do it because like you know like we just talked about there's so much data and we have to think of models to go about using it you know so you got to figure out ways to summarize the data to make it workable to make it understandable mhm the the yeah. other, the other thing you you said here you know you you sort of dropped in the conversation was chains of data what do you mean by that well i mean a lot of the times you have to sort of ch- when you use event data you can sort of have to figure out how to chain it to think of a of a timeline without tracking data, right? So basically, like let's say you want to track um, something like like counterattacks, right? It's very hard to do that with data because with event data because you don't know where players are, you just know where they are when they're doing something, right? So one way of figuring that out might be to look at time of a sequence. So if if they receive the ball after a certain amount of time and from this location, you can then judge speed of play by that, right? So it like it, it so that's sort of what I mean by data chain. You have to chain events together and make guesses about what happened between those two events. Okay. With tracking you don't have to make the guess, you know exactly what happened in between. You know where every player was. Uh, see, I, I I thought you were and th- that makes a lot of sense and definitely a challenge. I thought you were talking about sort of the idea of Figuring out, you know, going from, you know, for example, you know, if you're talking about expected goals, in some ways, that's a that's like a one shot event. It's like a discrete event. Right. It's a it's a shot and you got a zero one outcome. And I've noticed sort of in some sports, the idea sort of a goal of getting towards like sequence of events in terms of the models rather than kind of, uh, you know, like a binary or discrete events. And, and some of this actually comes from, I mean, one of the things I think is interesting in the background in this is where these models come from. And so, you know, like I'm a marketing guy and sometimes we worry about, like, say, the, let's say, and again, we're going way off topic here, but like this idea of like customer journey analytics where you are modeling you know, sequences of customer evolution. And I, I, I know that some, I've talked to some folks in sports that are interested in that kind of thing as well. Well, those, I mean, those things exist. There, there are non-shot models that look at um, where, where, play, where the ball is possessed in, in a passing sequence to figure out, um, right. you know, a non-shot XG. You know, like what is the, pro- the probability of scoring if you move the ball in this situation? And so like there's, there's a lot to be done with event data. Well, and, and and that's kind of an interesting thing. And again, to kind of at least partially connect this to other sports is like this idea of modeling, you know, let's say non-shot data or getting to expected goals. In some ways, that sounds a lot like some of the models that have built in, you know, using, let's say, NFL data, right? Where what is the value of punting or going mm-hmm. forward on fourth down? Or maybe the classic one in terms of baseball of <laughs> do you swing away or do you bunt? I think it's a little bit more challenge in soccer, right? Yes, but I would say that those revelations have come. So um, one of the big ones that we've learned from uh, data analytics is, is about crossing, the value of a cross. A cross is a ball sent from wide into the box. Um, what we have learned is they are not converted very often. So, and we've seen that teams that rely on crossing don't score as much. In in general, there are ways of ga- gaming the models, and you know certain players are just good at it. But in general, that's sort of the bunting in in baseball. Not to say and in baseball there are situations where you want to bunt, right? And and it's the best decision in soccer situations where you want to cross, and it's the best decision. But in general, we can say that crossing um, is is the bunting is the bunting of baseball. We we've see, we can look at the data and clearly say this is not an efficient way of going about scoring. And th- and that's awesome. So it's like you know we we've got a bunch of stuff here. Sort of the you know expected goals as a predictor of future player behavior. Great 
you know, set of models, evolution of the data to more about capturing flow than discrete events and or you know sequences of discrete events and even kind of this binary decision making of crossing sort of like bunting versus you know I, I don't know what the right words would be but continuing the the standard play right mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely so Sean absolutely enjoyed having you on let me um let me ask you just sort of one sort of final open-ended question you know as you sort of reflect on your career anything else you want to add in terms of where you think this all this whole thing is going to go next any advice you would want to give to students something to sort of uh you know put a bow on our conversation today yeah i mean um one thing i didn't get into that um, was hugely successful in my career and it's kind of an odd one was i networked on twitter <laughs> and <laughs> the and it, it sounds odd but there's a there's a very vibrant analytics community on Twitter. You know, I know a lot of analysts exclusively through Twitter. And so much of being able to see the work that's going on, see discussions that are going on, being able to jump in on discussions when you feel like, you know, you have something to add and sort of proving yourself in, in those discussions, that's incredible. Being able to have a conversation about spectacles with a guy in London and a guy who, you know, maybe in Australia or something, and, and you're sitting there in Georgia and you're going back and forth and having a fruitful discussion, that's huge. And then you're also making connections. And then those connections can lead you to where you need to go. I, I don't think it has to be through Twitter. Um, I think in analytics specifically, Twitter is um, where stuff is happening. But you know, I have people re- reach out to me all the time on LinkedIn. And uh, I always try to accept that. And you know, uh, if they're earnest, I always try to jump on a phone call with them. So I say, don't be afraid to network. I think that is so important. You'd like for the work to speak for your, speak for itself, and to an extent it will, but you also got to get the work in front of the right people. And so I think networking, trying to learn, meet people in the industry, huge, hugely helpful to where I am today. Awesome piece of advice and a great piece of advice to close on because um, it kind of captures the whole thing, right? You got to yeah. know the analytics. You got to be able to communicate it. And you've also got to have the publicity and sort of broadcast yourself and put it out there so that people know what you're doing. Yeah, and I'll throw this out there too. If you have any students or listeners on the podcast, contact me. Um, absolutely, you can contact me on LinkedIn. Um, just search my name. Um, I'm on Twitter on my name. <laughs> uh, you know, I you know if you want to learn more about this field, or you're interested in this field, I'll, I will jump on a phone call uh, with you. I, I you know um, I'm not going to be able to give you a job or anything but I can absolutely jump on a phone call with you and help you in any way I can. I don't think they could ask for anything more than that. Um, (laughs) So, Sean, thank you very much. Really appreciate the conversation. Well, thank you for having me.